Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome back to the next episode of the Courage to Lead interview series. Today we have something pretty special. We have four previous guests on the show, some amazing leaders, Carlin York, Amy Brown, Mick Willing, and Peter Scott. And they're going to be part of what we've called the resilience panel in today's interview, where they are going to share their personal experiences, emphasizing the importance of resilience in overcoming setbacks. They will discuss themes such as support systems, authentic leadership, the power of purpose, turning challenges into opportunities, the importance of self-care, and the constant value of individuals, to name a few other themes that they'll talk about. This is probably one of my favourite interviews in the series so far after 12 months of interviews, as these guests are really candid, really honest, and really have a, a wonderful discussion amongst themselves about what resilience means to them. Enough from me, let's hear 90 minutes of absolute leadership 101 on what resilience is at a leadership level and at a personal level. Welcome to the next uh, edition of the Courage to Lead interview series. And today we've got something pretty special that we've never tried before. Um, Mick Willing and Peter Scott come up with this concept. So we're, we're going to give it a go. It's called, this one's called the Resilience Panel, where we have four amazing leaders that we've had on the show over the last um, over 12 months of um, the show being on uh, on the air. Um, so the first guest uh, on the panel is Carlin York, the Commissioner of the State Emergency Services for New South Wales. The second guest is Amy Brown, the former CEO of Investment New South Wales and Secretary of the Department of Enterprise, Investment and Trade. The third guest is Mick Willing, currently the Managing Director of the National Security and safety uh, branch for Accenture and former Deputy Commissioner of the New South Wales Police. And the fourth guest is someone pretty special as well, um, Peter Scott, now an author, but the former Commodore of the Australian Submarine Fleet. So it's a pretty amazing panel and we're going to get these people to talk about resilience. So what I was going to, it's because they're, they're four special people, so we've, they've got a bit of a script um, already, but and I'll try and not say too much at all, but I was just going to ask um, each person to give a little bit of a minute spiel about about um, who who they are, and um, and and then we'll get into some questions around around their biggest challenges as leaders. So, and we'll do this in different orders all the time, so you don't get used to it. So, Carlin, you if you want to go first, do you just want to say? Um, a little bit about your history and um, and just introduce yourself to our audience. 
Yeah, great. Thanks, Alan. Uh, so currently I'm the Commissioner of the New South Wales State Emergency Service, which is a government agency that really relies on its volunteers in the community. So around 10,800 volunteers. And we're the combat agency for flood storms and tsunamis and certainly been called upon to help you know, a whole range of communities across New South Wales over the last few years in the times of floods uh, and gone international and interstate as well. So uh, been here just this month is my fourth year anniversary. So it's gone very quickly and been an amazing, amazing time with this wonderful group of people. Uh, but before that, I had over 30 years, 35 years, I hate to admit it because it gives away my age, um, <laughs> with the New South Wales Police Force and had a variety of wonderful roles where I always thought the, the job I was doing was the best one ever and then I'd get on to something better. So I started a, as a very young 19-year-old, grew up in Wagga Wagga um, and uh, you know started my career in policing, which is something I always wanted to do and had a really wonderful range of uh, senior leadership positions. So firstly, looking after Forensic Services Group, which was a time when, you know, the police were really looking at independent evidence for criminal investigations to go to court. So I had a lot of enhancements with new DNA uh, technologies and obviously fingerprints and all the other things that forensics, uh, forensics do. So that was quite a challenge. Then um, also ran Northern Region, which is all the police stations between uh, the Hawkesbury River and the Tweed border, which is a really... Uh, busy um, yes, area yeah. of New South yeah. Wales in a whole range of areas, whether it be emergency management or traffic flows along the busiest highway, crime, um, a lot of welfare issues for the police up there. So that was a challenge. And then I uh, uh, don't know how I managed, but the commissioner put me in charge of HR. So, um, <laughs> that, uh, but really good because I wanted to look after the health and wellbeing of police and do a lot of things there as well. So um, really diverse sort of uh, career in policing. Um, but I think that all led to hopefully building better skills that enable me to lead, you know, this wonderful organisation that I'm at at the moment. And um, I suppose just closing up just a little bit about personal things as well. You know, during that time, married, couple of children, uh, now going into the grandchildren stage. So, you know, balancing that as a as a working mother um, was often a challenge as well. So when you talk about resilience, I think um, resilience and guilt go go together sometimes as a as a working female mother, so um, a working mother, so, um, you know, great times. So that's about it for me. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion as we go through with my wonderful panel members. Good on you, Colleen. Um, and I'm very biased, but I think you're doing an amazing job with the SES with, with unforeseen challenges that you faced when you first joined with COVID. And um, and the and the worst floods that the state had ever seen. <laughs> so yeah, I uh, <laughs> wonder what I would have done had I had a crystal ball. But anyway, here I am. <laughs> um, and all the panel members were nodding about when you said the guilt word about um, yeah. So it, it, parenthood so, in general. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Amy, you're next. Off you go. Oh, all right. Um, thanks, Alan. And it is so good to be part of today's panel. I feel quite privileged to be um, talking about resilience with people who have been through a lot um, personally and professionally. Um, just to call out Carlene as the, I think you're the first female SES commissioner, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, first emergency services commissioner or police and emergency services in New South Wales. So pretty, yes. thr pretty thrilling. Yes. What you said. Um, <laughs> so I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation. 
Um, I moved to Australia when I was nine, um, when my dad grew up in quite difficult circumstances, um, managed to kind of um, alleviate uh, himself from that sort of intergenerational disadvantage and bring us to Australia. Um, I had access to great quality education and great community and friendships and family support. So that enabled me to um, go on and study law. I was a finance lawyer for a period of time um, and actually found my love in government infrastructure. Um, the reason I was a finance lawyer doing government infrastructure is on a lot of our infrastructure projects, we have private money um, coming in to help support the government funding uh, so that both sides can bring their best to the table. I then joined New South Wales government um, when Mike Baird was the treasurer. Uh, he became treasurer, I think, in 2011. And by 2013, they decided to do a special recruitment drive to bring people from the private side of the table to the government side of the table uh, to kind of, you know, really shake things up, drive best practice and share knowledge across both so that we could actually um, work really well with the private sector doing the infrastructure projects. Uh, went to PwC very briefly and then actually came back to government to be a deputy secretary in Premier Berejiklian's department. And this actually gave me insight beyond kind of the, the um, built form, I suppose, of how we support our citizens into the services, um, the government services that help support people to thrive, uh, where I got to meet some of the people on this call, because a lot of the most, most complex social policy issues involve all of government. And so um, I got to work with phenomenal people. Um, Premier Berejiklian decided to set up Investment New South Wales to drive um, kind of global trade and investment, science and innovation and um, tourism and hospitality and major events. Um, made me the inaugural CEO of that. That led me to me being the um, again, we created a new department called Enterprise Investment and Trade, and I was made secretary. Um, I left government about a year ago, and I've had a really interesting year actually doing kind of professional development and a bit of contracting on stuff that really excites me and being a mum and managing multiple touch footy teams um, because I really want to kind of make sure that I went through a bit of a time of trial last year, which has really um, sharpened the focus to me to make sure that I get my next uh, career opportunity right. Um, and every conversation has been fascinating and interesting and I've learned a lot. So I think that this conversation um, will kind of only add to that thinking about how we do resilience in our work and how we do it to help support other people be their best. Well, well, I think we're all um, on tender hooks for this to start it's pretty good so uh, Mick Mick Willing um good, good morning everyone and look ditto uh, Amy and um and Carleen what a privilege to be part of of an amazing panel with good friends and um and people that I, I admire deeply you know um having met and worked alongside them uh, for some time so my story, I guess um, I'm now, as you said, a managing director, national security and safety, which is public safety for Accenture, a global consulting firm, something I, I never thought that I'd end up doing. But um, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a range of federal government agencies uh, in the national security space, which is quite interesting. Prior to that, um, 31 years or so with New South Wales Police, um, a range of different roles, uh, including local area commander leading the homicide squad for six years, which was uh, an absolute privilege, uh, and uh, Counter-Terrorism Command, Central Met Region. Um, for my sins, I, I led the bushfire recovery efforts um, in early 2020. 
um, was part, like Amy, worked very closely uh, with Amy and Carlene and others um, around as that transitioned into, into COVID um, response and recovery as well. Finished as a deputy commissioner uh, in January of last year, and um, you know there's a whole sort of story around that. And um, certainly the the last couple of years uh, has been very interesting in many ways, and I'm sure that we'll sort of pull that apart as we talk. For me, um, much like Carlene, I'm a I'm a country guy as well, and uh, born and bred in Dubbo, and um, just reflecting on a couple of things as we opened up there. Um, I guess my story in terms of my family, my father. Uh, left home when he was 14 because his house burnt down, the family home burnt down, and uh, he he wanted to be an accountant, um, and he was uh, could could have done that, but had no choice but to to walk the streets of Dubbo and uh, and to find a job, and he ended up working in a hardware store for 38 years, uh, you know, and, and didn't have the opportunities that that I've had and that um, and others had, so. My father's experience uh, really instilled in me um, the the desire, I guess, to take advantage of every opportunity that comes my way as best I can, and and also that sort of deep sense of purpose and actually doing something because um, I, I I believe that uh, you know people like us owe it to people who don't have the opportunity to achieve things um, like we do. So. All of that sort of uh, has has led me to where I am at the moment. Um, you know, trying the private sector, uh, much like Amy did. Uh, interesting, different, in lots of ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure where where my personal journey will end up um, at this point. So. Thank you, Mick. I think um, all of you have a story to tell, and uh, and uh, and you can feel already that you you're going to be quite honest and open about about some of those journeys. So. Um, uh, thank you very much, Pete. Just uh, you're the final introduction, and and I, I assure you it'll be a it'll be a mix up of who goes first. So don't get don't get settled in what the order is. <laughs> no trouble. Thanks, uh, th thanks, Alan. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the panel. Really appreciate it. Uh, Alan mentioned earlier briefly that he and I met when we were both writing our books. So I've written a a memoir, uh, Running Deep in Australian Submarine Life, which gives you a bit of a clue about my background. Uh, 34 years in Navy, uh, mostly in submarines, um, although did a, did quite a few joint jobs, um, so with the other services and, and so on in, in my latter years. Uh, spent a bit of time uh, on active service in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan and the Gulf uh, through the years. Uh, finished up in a glorious job, which was uh, Director General Submarines, uh, head of the submarine profession there. Uh, challenging time, but uh, lots of people doing great work and and really got the uh, submarine arm on a on an upward trajectory over those those years. Um, popped out uh, 2017 and um, actually landed on my feet in a in a great job with New South Wales government, uh, standing up a team called Defence New South Wales. Um, we moved around a few different parts of government. We ended up in, in the last bit of government that you were working in, Amy. Um, so that was a great job, just connecting government and industry um, across the defence space for about four years. Um, while I was doing that, I read for a master's in uh, coaching psychology, and, and I now work as, a, as an executive coach, um, really to help other leaders uh, with their challenges and help them develop and perform and and succeed. 
um, outside of work, uh, family man, wife and wife and daughter, uh, love spending time with them and uh, love spending time out on the trails, run a few ultra marathons a year just to keep myself uh, on uh, on track and out of trouble. Incredible. Yeah. So that's, gonna, that's me, Alan. Uh, it's an incredible story. He's so modest, this Peter Scott. Um, and and you were nodding away and your book kind of not, uh, mentions the uh, what Carlene started with, the, the, the guilt word about family, like being a submariner, being absent um, all over the world. Uh, there's a story to tell there. So, so let's get into it. Thank you for those introductions. And I think we all can't wait to start. So I'm going to ask you the next question is, what does resilience mean to you? And I think we'll loop the next question into it. Um, what is your biggest individual challenge um, and how did you deal with it? So what does resilience mean to you? And uh, what was your what has been your biggest challenge? And some of you might have a couple. And we'll try and keep it to five minutes if we can. Um, uh, and and I'm if you if someone else wants to join in, um, uh, put up your hand. Uh, uh, you know how to use that function on 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 this in, or even just put up your hand. I can see you. <laughs> and um, and uh, we'll just start a discussion. So let's. Uh, I'll whack it out of um, order straight away. So, uh, Mick, do you want to start this off? What's what does resilience yeah. mean to you, and what and what's been mm. your greatest challenges? Challenges, I think, is yeah, probably yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Look, you know, and I and I need to 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 loop back on the family thing too, you know, because that's a that's a thread that runs through, I guess, my challenges. Um, you know, I'm I'm a, a father, married to a psychologist, uh, and I have two beautiful daughters who are um, teenage daughters as well, who have been fantastic. But I guess resilience, um, for me, it's a it's a it's a really good question, Alan. And I think it's I think it's the ability to to recover from really tough sometimes unforeseen circumstances or events and I, and I guess it's in two parts it's it's how you deal with it at the time and how you feel but also importantly the ability to to, to mend the cracks to, to 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 you know fill in the gaps and the cracks that ha that have appeared through going through tough situations in, in a way that's both sort of healthy and instructive so you learn from it as well so I think, you know, resilience has got a whole range of different characteristics for me, um, but it's that that ability to, uh, to, to to tough it out and come out the other side um, better, more more resilient, you know, I guess, than than what you went into um, those circumstances. So I, I guess. And, I, and the other thing is, I think resilience is different for for different people. Um, people deal with it in different ways and people um, uh you know, I guess cope with resilience and and or display resilience in different ways. So biggest individual challenges, um, I guess two. Um, first and foremost, um, as as most people know, leaving the New South Wales Police Force in January last year, um, under the way I did was was really tough for me. Um, I've been a a career police officer. Um, I, I was on a journey. Um, in lots of ways. Had participated in um, a process to uh, select the, uh, the the new commissioner um, with others. That uh, that didn't ultimately go my way, and and that's that's life. That's what happens in those positions. 
Uh, and then I knew that um, you know it would be very difficult for me to 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 be around in that role. So um, I end up leaving, um, you know, and, and the circumstances are what they are. But for me, for the first time in 31, 32 years, I, I I found myself losing my identity in lots of ways, and I really, really. Um, you know, real one minute you're a deputy police commissioner, and next minute you're uh, you don't have a job, and uh, I, it was a really tough situation for me to deal with, um, both emotionally and I guess professionally, because of that loss of identity. Um, you know what I did and how I dealt with it. Um, I had a very good network around me of of people, strong supporters, you know, great people, and. I leaned on them um, as best I could um, for support. You know, uh, they they certainly were forthcoming uh, with support. But the second thing I did was threw my hand up and got help. And when I say that, um, I say it with some pride. Um, I engaged a, a very good CEO transition coach um, who who is excellent, remains um, a, a coach of mine to this day at Accenture. She's she's outstanding. And then um, I threw my hand up and got help from a um, from a psychologist who, again, remains um, a very good friend of mine and um, helped me deal with uh, that whole transition about loss of identity, hurt, um, you know, fear about what comes next, et cetera. So um, that's that's something which has been uh, was very, very helpful. And I guess the second thing is um, this year has been um, an incredibly tough year in many ways um you know whilst i've been working in the private sector accenture have been amazing to me uh much like amy dragged into a public inquiry um which has been going for over a year now uh and whilst it's still going i'll be quite circumspect i guess um but you know facing questions um about your decisions and things that you made 10 years ago uh, or eight years ago, which has been extremely challenging. I've given evidence a number of times. Um, it's very, very stressful. Um, I have a great uh, legal team around me, but that's impacted on the health of my family um, as well. And uh, at the same time as that has occurred, um, some some very close family members, I'll just leave it at that, have um, are, are continuing to experience um, their own mental health challenges. And uh, all of that has caused this year to be um, an extremely challenging year. Um, and yet again, you know, we as a family have reached out and gotten help um, and uh, we are we're working our way through those sorts of things. But the value of family and people around you who care for you um, has never been more um, clear to me that that's what you need to be resilient. You need to you need to tap into those around you who care and love for you. What a great answer, Mick. Um, and, I th and I will probably go off script a little bit here, but um, all of the people in this panel have kind of um, done, not done battle, Performed at the highest level with the highest challenges in in government at whatever level, and that and would you all agree that um, sometimes those challenges set us up best to deal with when it really counts at the family level? You're all nodding. <laughs> Do you want anyone right now? Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. 
Carleen, yep. I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, no one, uh, there was a point I was going to make in my little um, spiel to that answer to that question is it, no one in our positions gets through it with a dream run. You or there's there's adversity somewhere along the way, and that resilience and bouncing back and being stronger and and learning from it, looking in the mirror, you know, all the things that say what could I have done better or what was even sometimes done to you, and it's how how you react. And you know, I really feel for me because you know it it knocks you for a while, and it, but it's a it's about how how you can get back up. And you know, uh, I think even from the introductions, we've all heard that you know it's just not. Um, uh, you know, like I say, a dream run where where everything's great. And I think some people look at us and think, oh, well, you, and it's been said to me, you get to the, oh, you've had a dream run, you know, you've never had a disappointment. <laughs> and you think, no, no, you only hear about the good things. You actually yeah. don't always um, hear about the bad things. So, yeah, I totally agree. Well, you've got, I was going to leave you to last, Colin, but you're, you've got the floor now. So, and you're, uh, you, you, do you want to, um, do you want to just go into your um, your personal story now, please? Like, yeah. Yeah, well, I, well, I had sort of a, a different answer um, ready for you, but listening to Mick and, I, and I, Mick and I haven't spoken a lot about him leaving the organisation, but there's actually quite a few uh, similarities. As um, yeah. I left the police, and it wasn't my choice either, and it was part of coming out of going for the commissioner's job and then not being part of the new team um, and it comes as a shock because you've given all those years and you've achieved a lot as, as Mick did and and uh, I absolutely you know can understand the the decision um, about who has the leadership team around them and all that yeah um, but I think one of the things with me is after I didn't get the the position as commissioner I took an opportunity to go into another government department as the secretary of um, uh, deputy secretary in corporate for justice. And it gave me an opportunity just to step away and think about what I'm going to do. And uh, it was certainly a, a boost to say, well, someone does see some value in the skills that I have. So that was really nice that I was given the offer by the secretary. But I think it really opened my eyes, which um, regretfully, you know, if I can just say Mick didn't have that opportunity is I was able to step out. I was employed. Um, I was valued in a new area for some of the changes I brought in, but it also allowed me to think about, okay, how do my policing leadership skills fit into a, an external environment? And then had I not had that knockback or move on conversation and gone into justice, I probably wouldn't, I would, I know I wouldn't have applied to be commissioner of the New South Wales SES. So when you think about resilience, it's how you take those knockbacks, as I said before, and how you bounce back and what you do as a result of it. And we've had slightly different journeys, uh, Mick and I, you know, as a result of, um, you know, that that sort of um, example. But we have both, I think, shown strong resilience to actually move on and be successful in a, in a totally different field um, for what we were in in policing. So. I think that's really um, an important thing, and it's it's sometimes resilience is looked at as a it's a negative thing. You've had all these knockbacks. Resilience is also about just going for the strategy or the idea that you want and continuing on. So you know, I often say is if I get eighty percent of what I want in, whether it's resources or a project or whatever. I'm pretty happy because I'll come back again and come around for the other 20%. I don't take it as a total knockback or a problem. It's just that strength of being able to continue on 
to drive for that. And as leaders, we've got to have a strategy. We've got to have a vision. And so you've got to go along the journey. And, yeah, there's a few speed bumps and you might have to turn left instead of right. But it's about having that aim of where you want to go to. And I think that's an example of resilience as well. I think, yes, um, what Mika said is about that resilience of really those personal knockbacks. But it's also resilience in your business or, you know, um, role um, as leaders to you know, get up every morning, put on a strong face, show confidence and take your team along is that that is difficult sometimes, you know, when you don't want to get out of bed and you don't want to go to work because you you haven't succeeded in what you want, but your staff or your members are relying so much on you to uh, to lead your unit or your team um, in going forward. So I think that's really um, important in resilience and keeping positive. I, I always look through a positive lens about, yep, we didn't get all of it, but we got some of it. So someone appreciated what we did. Let's uh, try and get that evidence to to continue on that um, bid for whatever we were trying to do. Um, and so 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 that part of my career of changing um, uh, direction in in my career, yep, that was a that was a real challenge. Um, and again, without going over what Mika just said, family, friends, Support from areas that you didn't expect support, I think, is the most. Um, you realise who supports you and who doesn't, the ones who are silent. Um, for whatever reason, you, you thought were supporters are missing. Uh, and there's others that, you know, that might be, in in my case, you know, a, a junior officer has said, oh, I'm, so, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry what happened to you. But I remember you gave a lecture and you changed my life because I went and did X, Y, and Z. I mean, they're the sorts of things that prop us up as leaders is when there's things that you don't even know that you influence others. So that sort of uh, feedback is great. Um, and just one, one, I'll just outline one of the other challenges, I, I think, is when one of my officers committed suicide. I think that was one of the biggest challenge I, I had in uh, that I didn't know them that well. There were a few, we were talking about ranks or grades, a few ranks below me, quite a few. Um, but they could, at, at the time when they were not ill, mentally um, unwell, um, only could talk to me, only wanted me to visit them in hospital, besides their family, but no one else from work. And and I thought, like, I really, I really didn't know this officer that well. And so I was drawn into being that support. Um, and they seemed to be getting better, had a... Um, a wife and and children, um, and I won't go into the details to identify anyone, but really seemed to be better and got out of the um, um, the hospital that was assisting them, and then out of the blue committed suicide. And you you go through this about what could I have done? Should I have done something else? Um, and you know it's it's mental health, which is very very difficult to deal with um, by anybody, um, but just that then led me on a path in the New South Wales Police to say, I want to help police so that they do not go down this path again. I want to stop them being ill um, with whatever resource or project or strategy that I could do to um, make them feel better. And so that's the sort of things I tried to do in Northern Region when there was a lot of mental health issues by the police up there and a lot of um, stress. And then you know, it wasn't my decision to take over HR, not at all. I mean, boy, that's a big thing in the New South Wales Police with, you know, around 20,000 or so. 
uh, and lots of challenges because of the nature of the work. You know, like the community just expect police to do the job, the you know, unenviable job that they have to do. And so when I got to HR, though, I thought, right, I've done lots of things. It's now the opportunity to put some really good strategies in place to try and help help those. So I suppose resilient, I got over it, but it still does haunt me, and I still, you know, am, am challenged by the fact of the suicide. But then it led me on to a, I suppose, a, a passion to try and uh, do something else. I mean, obviously, it didn't solve the problem. It's it's the nature of the work, and it's still continuing. But we had lots of great successes in some of those programs that that we did to change, to change the focus from just responding and really trying to get officers healthy when they were way down the path that was you know, very challenging to be successful in that space to actually making sure that they could understand the signs, the family could understand the signs and they could step in easily. Um, and right from the stage of being a probationary constable where I would talk to them about the challenges and the emotions of what they would go through in policing, which hadn't sort of been done before. So, yeah, so there's some of the, a couple of examples of challenges and resilience, I suppose, and and trying to just make sure that, you know, you leave a, a good legacy and a good mark, and and if if uh, you know some people are healthier because of it, then you've achieved you've achieved a whole lot. Well done, Carl, and um, and I, I I'm very biased to what what you what you have done in the in the in the New South Wales Police, but you were talking what you were describing there was called the recon program, and probably some of I forget what it was called the family meeting day after before okay. the before they the young probationers passed out of the police academy. I was part of all of them. Uh, and they ch did change people's lives. So um, uh, uh, one of the analogies you used for the recon program on your first interview was something like you wanted to treat injured police officers like a first grade footballer to get them back on the field as quick as you could with support uh, mentally yeah. and, and uh, physically. So um, and I just uh, this is not about me, but I, I, I heard um, Katrina Carroll. I think that's how you say her name, the commissioner up in Queensland, talk about what you just talked about. And she she talked about it. There's a moment in time when people need help, and if you miss it, they go down the the, uh -huh. the, 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 the you, we miss it. But if you get it, and that's what you brought in in recon, you can actually make a difference. So well well done, well done to you, yeah, Carla. Thanks. Um, um, Peter, uh, I'll, I'll 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 leave you last, uh, Amy, uh, for this one, and then we'll so P Peter Scott. What what's resilience mean to you, and um, and what is what um, what has been one of your individ biggest individual challenges? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Alan. Um, so, just to go to uh, one of Carlene's points there. Um, certainly, my my professional career has not been all uh, sunshine and roses, and at times I've had to pull myself out of some pretty uh, dark and difficult places. Um, but also um, with others as well, I've seen that, you know, pretty much any traumatic experience uh, can have the power to really sap our, our cognitive and our emotional and our physical resources. Um, but I've also learned that those same difficult experiences can be powerful opportunities to exercise and demonstrate resilience. Um, I, I think of resilience in a certain way, though. Um, I don't think of it as a, a muscle to build. I don't think of it as something that you accrue uh, like, you know, coins in a piggy bank and then expend. I think of it first and foremost as an ability. So for me um, to be resilient is to be able to do a couple of things. 
And the first thing is to recognize the true nature of the challenge that you're facing. And when you can understand the challenge you're facing, then to be able to identify the right resource to help you through that challenge. And that, that resource might be internal, it might be external, um, it might be multiple resources. And then probably the third and critical part is to be willing and also able to access that resource at the right time. Um, so just to sort of follow on the theme of transitions there, um, I, I actually had a, um, a very different experience transitioning out of Navy, long time career in Navy, um, but I had a lot of autonomy in the decision. I decided it was time for me to go. Um, and uh, and it just it felt quite quite natural and and okay for me. It was and it all went pretty well. One of the reasons it went pretty well was as I stepped out with no clear ambition of where I would go or what I would do. Um, a fellow by the name of Air Marshal John Harvey um, kept phoning me up and saying, "Scotty, I've got a job for you. Um, it fits. You can do a great job there." come on board and and that was that defense new south wales job to stand up a team there and and really to continue work in the defense space but just from a very different um very different direction um and the reason i raise that is because you know that was a resource that was going to enable my resilience on transition it wasn't something that i looked for um it came to me and it i resisted it for quite a while um, I said to John a couple of times, John, I am not, not going to take the first job that's offered to me when I leave the Navy. And it was the first job that was offered because he was very quick off the mark. Um, but, but in time, I came to realise that, you know what, it does fit and um, uh, it's going to help me along. And, and John's supporting me and encouraging me. So why not take up that resource um, and, and move forward um, in in that direction, so that's probably a little bit from me on on resilience. Okay, there's a, I know there's a lot more. You're, you're such a modest guy, Pete. <laughs> um, so we'll we'll uh, extricate it a little bit more as we go along, because um, I think I, I see all the other panel members just smiling. There's there's so much more uh, <laughs> to you, um, Amy. Over to you, and then we'll then we we might just uh, try and open it up a little bit more. Sure. Um, so resilience is definitely something that I've spent the last year and even well before that thinking about um, because it is such an integral part of being a good leader um, and being able to make an impact in the world. So um, I see resilience as a combination of courage and learning. So if I just define them and then I'll give you my very real example, um, courage for me is the ability to keep moving forward. Um, even when you feel alone, which is often the situation when you are in the kind of highest levels of, of um, stress and struggle and, and external kind of forces, um, and even through the most challenging times. And I think courage looks different for everyone in each circumstance, um, but courage is a big part of it for me. And then the other is learning. So um, basically I always think, okay, there's a, I've just been through a big setback Am I going to use it to be better or am I going to use it to be bitter? And making sure that I kind of grab with two hands the opportunity to learn and be a better leader. So um, 
I went through a time of trial last year that I mentioned. Um, I refer to it as a firestorm, which feels really weird when I'm on a call with people who have literally run into fire, physical firestorms and I'm talking about a metaphorical firestorm. Um, so apologies for that, <laughs> if that's a bit insensitive, but that is the word I've been using, partly because um, for me, fire is refining. It is how precious metals are made. Um, and so for me, walking through a metaphorical firestorm really did um, sharpen me as a leader and make me kind of a different person in a lot of ways. Um, just to give a bit of colour, um, last year I was thrown into the middle of a parliamentary inquiry that attracted a lot of media attention and a lot of public commentary. Um, I was called to the inquiry to give evidence as a witness um, under oath. And what I said in the inquiry ultimately cost me my job. Um, the reason it was so heightened for me, you know, it wasn't kind of just a one day, a bad day in the office. Um, the unrelenting media coverage went for 16 weeks. Um, my exit from government was really difficult uh, publicly and personally. Um, and then there was a, another type of inquiry that followed that then took kind of the remainder of the year. And so for me in those moments, courage looked like just keep walking. I knew I was, the valley was not going to be, you know, a day or a week. I knew it was going to be quite long. And I thought just keep putting one foot in front of the other because if you stop, you get attacked by the bats. Just keep going through. Um, and, you know, that's, that's essentially the approach that I had to it, um, I suppose. I think sometimes it's good to remember that setbacks are, feel overwhelming because they feel that you're not in, you feel like you're not in control. And by definition, you're usually not in control. It's something that's happened to you. Um, it would be remiss of me not to mention that my Christian faith played a big part in that because um, I felt like I could trust the person that I feel is in control. And that was huge for me in getting through it, um, together with my community and my family and friends and the like. Um, in terms of, you know, that using it to be better, not bitter. I feel like I'm such a better leader. Um, now, my kind of thing that I say is that I'm good at leading people and leading through complexity um, and learning that kind of body on the line sort of leadership, um, being courageous for your people, trying to maintain dignity when you're walking through it. It's not about blame shifting or revenge um, or anger, if you wallow around in those emotions, it just makes it so much harder. Um, and then I felt when I got through it, there was a lot I could have done once I was a free citizen. Um, and I thought, no, the best thing you can do is move on and say you've learned something. Um, and again, explain to people that where I learned, you can't learn any other way. You can't learn how to lead through the most complex challenges unless you've walked through one. Um, and also just for next time, I'll probably have a bit more of a break glass in case of emergency plan um, in any role where you're, I mean, this was the most senior level I've been at. So I didn't quite realise that um, you need to know who those people are who are going to rally around you. Um, you know, anything from a lawyer um, to people from outside your organisation who are really wise and can give you impartial advice um, to who's going to help look after your family because you don't have time, energy or the headspace to cook. Um, so, you know, I kind of gathered the people around me, but it took a bit long. Um, and for next time, I'm going to kind of have some really great trusted friends and mentors spring loaded 
um, ready to go because this will not be the last hard thing that happens to me. Um, if you play at this level and outside your comfort zone, then you're going to walk through a number of trials. And I think you kind of get to the end and hopefully, and the people on this call can maybe testify to this, um, you can say it's worth it. So that's my piece. Well, what an answer. And I, I will go off script now. Who who wants to talk about that? Because right. um, you're all at that level where, and Amy just talked about, um, I really like that, that term actually, um, the break glass in case of emergency plan, yeah. when, it, um, when you're in a situation that's never never happened before um so all of you like in the sub like in your book peter you talk about it carlene in your last um interview you talked about like the 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 review that happened to the ses um and, and how you like you were in in mick you've 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 had you've had several examples of um uh you, you open so who wants to lead um how, with the, that response how do how do you have that um, break glass in case of emergency plan. How do you have that support team so when you have your worst day at work, you are okay? Who wants to talk about that? I don't mind starting if that's all right. Because yeah, yeah, I was yeah. going to comment about that. Um, that uh, comment, Amy, about break glass in case of emergency. Geez, I wish I had that because things move so fast and i remember um you know some time ago um somebody who was the executive director of the australian institute of police management who carlene knows um some time ago said to me mick you've got to have a plan b and i was like yeah, yeah of course i do of course i do <laughs> and but things move so fast i didn't have a plan b and so i found myself going oh my god i need a plan b right now literally right now and i didn't have one and so it was pure people and support who cared for me, who came to me and went, Mick, we're there for you. And I guess nudged me in the right direction to be able to create my own plan B on the run. But I think, I think, you know, you need to actively think about those black swan events that might come and, and, you know, how you might react to some of those things as well. Because as you said, playing at that top level, you know, the consequences of it, you know, it's not, you know what can go wrong and what can go right. And then um, I guess having a little bit of a plan or a network or building that um, that sort of network around you in preparation for what might go wrong is really important. So. Good stuff. Carlene? Do you want to – yeah, we're, we're, we're going on this um, break glass in case, case of emergency plan. Uh, and to me, you, I mean, you've probably got an idea in your own head, but to me that time was the the double Northern Rivers floods the review into the SES and um, Resilience New South Wales, and you were right up in that. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's yeah, probably... in the middle of it. Yeah, um, yeah look, I, I, I um, agree with Mick is you need a plan B, but the problem is you look at it and you look at it happening to other people and you yes. think that it will never happen to you because, you, you, you know, we've got the right ethics, the right values, the right intention, particularly when you work for government, you know, you, you're doing a really great job and you're involved in it and, and you just, you know, it's good to say have a plan B. I absolutely agree. But you don't think you need a plan B because it's just not going to happen. And I think that's an awareness <laughs> that you need. And then uh, it's also what will happen. So, so many things could happen in so many different ways. And what would you plan? I, I would never have thought I needed a plan B to have another career outside of policing. 
Um, so, yeah, so I think I, mm. I go to the um, have your networks and things like that around you to help you navigate, manoeuvre and survive through whatever the um, the issue is. Um, and, you know, just you know, just have to try and be strong. And like Amy said, with dignity, of, of, and I said before, is get up in the morning, put on that good face, go in and, and do what you feel is right in those circumstances, but hopefully with the support and advice of um, well-trusted mentors and and friends and family. And, you know, family is the most important. And, and well, when I say family, you know, the, the closest of friends, if you haven't got, you know, that close family network, of who you can go and just speak honestly with um, over a cup of coffee or, or whatever, or just complain and whinge and I don't know if you want to swear or whatever the way is you get that anger out of you so that you can get up the next day and um, face the the next barrage that might be coming coming your way. And, and know, I suppose, that it will end. You don't know how it will end, but um, also how, how can you try and... Um, um have some influence over th over the ending or or take that control and i think i think it was amy that said you know you feel like you haven't got control and that's uh, and when mick says about leaving the police force and losing his identity it is about that control over your life and you do have control over some decisions you just don't have control over everything so you sort of need to sit down and think about okay what can i do about this and it might be depending on the circumstances, it might be you take control and you do leave before someone asks you to leave or um, you try and you try and be in control of those areas um, that you are best in. And it goes with the when I was talking about the mental health of police officers is they they at some stage can't come back to the to law enforcement and they feel out of control. So, you know, you've got to help them go through about these are the decisions and the control points that you actually do have. Um, and help them through that process. So, yeah, really, I, you know, I didn't have a plan B, just didn't think it was going to happen to me. Um, I might just, because uh, I, I remember points from your first interview on the show, Carlene. So one of the strong points that came out in your first interview was the way you treated people at any stage of your career. You always treated people fairly and well, and you yeah. didn't burn people. So that that kind of helps um, that answer that you said um, have your networks to survive. Like if, if you've treated people badly, you have no net, you have no networks. <laughs> but if you yeah. if you've treated people fairly, you have you do yeah, have people. That's right. that doesn't that doesn't mean you haven't made hard decisions that people haven't liked. I mean there are pe there are people in in my career that haven't liked me, uh, particularly when you're in HR because whenever you make a decision, you're for one side against another side often in a mm -hmm. HR. Uh, dispute or decision, but uh, I did always think it doesn't matter whether you're a sworn police officer or a public servant, you had a valuable contribution, you had a great opinion, doesn't matter if you're a grade one, two or a, you know, a senior executive of the organisation, everyone has their learnings and experience and, and skills um, and contribution that they can make in. So um, I think... Um, you know, I had very uh, influential grandparents who were just down down in the earth country people that teach you certain values. And as Amy said, she had her, um, uh, I didn't know, I can't remember how you, your faith. Um, right, and, uh, you know, I had, don't, you know, treat others you would like to treat, you would like them to treat yourself. And I, I think that gets you through life pretty well. Um, 
but it also gives you that angst about making that right decision, you know, because I often had to, you know, um, consider how, you know, I would, how, how that person's going to take it, how they're going to feel. You know, sometimes it's, it's you know, it would be nice if I didn't think about their feelings, but, um, you know, that's, that's just what you've it's got to do you as, a, yeah. as a good leader, you know, to yeah. think about the ramifications of your decisions on other people. I've had that said to me several times. Probably all of you would have, you know, sometimes uh, because we care gets in the way, but I think we care makes what you, what you, what all the four of you are so special. Like you do care. Um, oh, there's so many rabbit warrens we could go there with that. What this topic, um, Pete? Um, do you just want to talk about break glass in case of emergency plan? Uh, I, I, that you know, Art, Amy started this conversation. Mix built on it. Carlin's built yep. on it. Um, uh, do you want to go there with like you've got so many stories about? Yeah, I'll just I'll just chip something in there. Um, I think when it comes to having the support that you need when you need it most, um, there's a couple of traps that you can you can fall into, and I've I've probably been in them a few times myself. Um, you know, when I look back and think about. Um, you know, the times and the circumstances when, for example, I've really needed, you know, my family, my close family, my wife and my daughter or my extended family. Um, often I've, I've been lucky that they were actually there for me at the time. Um, and, and it's in part because, um, you, you know, strong leaders are often quite independent people. Um, strong leaders are often... Um, highly committed to the work and the, the leadership that they're they're providing um, and it can be really easy um, to uh, neglect the relationships with the family and, and friends um, I think often the support that is there is quite is passive it's there if it's needed um, and it can be because of that it can be taken for granted um, so I think something I've learned over time often the hard way is um, you know you've got to know what you value, and be able to translate that to who you most value, um, and be be willing to honour that you know every day, in some way, um, so that you do you know preserve the relationships um, with with family with friends, so that they can be there for you on the day when you actually need them, um, and I think sometimes. Another part of that is um, being being ready and willing uh, to accept the advice as well as the support of those those people. Um, and quite often, I've been in a situation where I haven't really realised that I needed their advice or support, but they've sort of brought me back and said, "No, no, <laughs> you need to back off on this," or um, "You think you're relaxed? You're not relaxed." You know. Um, there's something working at you and just be willing to, as I say, um, preserve the relationship. So the support's there when you need it and also be willing to take the advice of those who love and know you the best. Yeah. Do you want to, um, yeah, cause I know your story. I've, I've read, I've read your drafts and I've read, I've read your, your book and I've, I've interviewed you, Pete. There's a really nice story about your daughter. Um, when you were going to, um, I think you got uh, stationed to Afghanistan or Iraq and you were really yeah. worried about the concerns that would have on your family. Do you want to tell what your daughter 
said to you there in in this interview yeah it was um it was quite revealing um as to the sort of the true relationship that we had um and her experience of my service um so i'd been uh posted i was deploying to iraq in uh 2006 uh iraq was a pretty messed up place at that time um and it was the first time i'd really been deployed on uh, active service in a, in a ground war um, and what i noticed in the lead up was that um, there was all sorts of tension in the family but my daughter who was about 11 or 12 at the time seemed actually quite relaxed and i wasn't sure whether it was because she didn't understand what was going on um, or she didn't care or she was you know putting up walls or whatever so we had a conversation and what she said was um dad i understand where you're going i know it's dangerous um and i don't un miss i don't underestimate what's happening um but for me this is easier to deal with than your life at sea so for her uh life until that stage she she'd she'd be asked at school where's your dad you know at a at camp or something um and she knew that I was at sea. She had no idea where, because I was a submariner. She had no idea what I was doing. So it, it wasn't enough of an answer for her. And it, it certainly wasn't enough of an answer for her family and friends. And she said, look, Dad, um, I know you're going to Iraq. At least I will know where you are <laughs> on any given day. And that for me, for her, is an easier thing to deal with. Um, so uh, that was, um, I was in one way relieved, um, but I was also quite devastated that, you know, my service had had that sort of impact uh, on her over that time. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how I connect that to the earlier discussion, but no, that's the story I, you asked I, for, Alan. So. <laughs> I, I think you, if you think back to what um, I think Carlene said it, about guilt in the first five minutes, you just gave us the example <laughs> of, um, of the cost of, and I, and I knew it was there. So um, that's quite beautiful. So let's, uh, the next question, I'll start with you, Amy. Um, uh how, what does, it's a kind of related question. What does resilience mean to you as a leader at an organisational level? And probably how have you led your people through their biggest challenges? Mm. So so I can think of every, I can think of an answer for all of you. <laughs> so you take us where you want to go. Um, and and so I'll go Amy, Peter, Carly and Mick. So you just so you can prepare for... Yeah, I won't, I won't make too many. I think my big, biggest comment on resilience and an organisational level and being able to kind of um, get through things or, you know, um, pivot when need be or be agile as an organisation to respond to external circumstances, which is all kind of another version of resilience. For me, it's all about culture. Um, so, you know, it's having that culture, firstly, where people feel that um, they can bring their true selves and um, speak freely and bring new ideas and call out 
behaviour or um, ways of doing business that are misaligned with whatever the um, values of your organisation are espoused to be. Um, I think that's a big part of then being set up to face challenges because if people are coming to work um, kind of armoured and, um, and being careful about what they say, who they can trust, what's being said behind the back, whether there's a meeting before the meeting or a meeting after the meeting that not everyone's in, um, those type of kind of cultural manifestations, if they're not right, then an organisation is going to have trouble just moving forward in, under BAU. Um, let alone being able to rise to challenges or um, have that kind of organisational agility um, and ability to kind of seize new opportunities or respond to things in different ways. So um, I guess that that kind of um, culture setting and the biggest, well, one of the biggest ways you can do that is being authentic as a leader um, and you doing business in a way that aligns with your values and the organisation's values. Um, because that gives other people permission to kind of be their true selves. And it also attracts opportunities for yourself and more broadly that are aligned with your values. So as soon as you kind of operate in a way that's outside of that, people know it. People are not silly. Um, you know, they they have their eyes on their leaders and um, it really does dictate the kind of drumbeat of the organisation. Um, and I think that, like I said, that applies in lots of different circumstances. But the resilient, the resilient kind of scenario um, is is definitely one where that will play out or not. <laughs> mm. You know, it could play out in a really good way or a really terrible way. And that's just so, if it is the latter, it's just so unfortunate for the people who have signed up to work there, left their kids at home to be part of it. And so much disappointment can follow um, if, if things, you know, don't go the way they should. Um, from the leadership and from the organisation. That's a great answer. Um, and I'd, I'd, you answer this next question the way you want, Amy. Can you give a personal example of you you witnessing that or you doing that yourself where you called, I think the best, exa best example there is um, where you, you call out behaviour that's misaligned to a good culture. So something you've you've witnessed or something that you did? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, only a couple of examples. I um, don't want to um, dwell on the negative too much, but sometimes, you know, um, Jim Betts always says sometimes the way to be a great leader is to think of the worst leader, you know, and then do the opposite. So I find that quite, <laughs> quite cute, but maybe there's some truth in it. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. I worked for an organisation that needed, that definitely had some cultural issues, and part of that was the way the business was set up and how people were incentivised and motivated um, from a kind of revenue perspective. And, look, when when we did try and do some work around um, trying to fix that, even the simple phrase that we started using when we did um, need to call out um you know, behaviour or language or um, that sort of thing that was mis misaligned with how we wanted to be, we just say, we're better than that, you know, and that was enough of a cue for people to stop and check themselves because rewarding the outcome is one thing, but that doesn't work if if um, the way that people go about their business um, isn't, isn't aligned. And so um, sometimes I think it's better to reward the way people do their work rather than just, particularly if it's a revenue or financial outcome, um, the way that people do their work is so much more important. And if people are doing it um, in a spirit of service and humility, then the results will speak for themselves. Um, I have to make a very 
brief comment that when I went through my difficult time, um, there were some examples of kind of poor leadership within the public service. Um, you know, the politicians can do whatever they want, in, uh, whatever, but I was part of the public service and I think we're called upon um, to tell the truth uh, and to stand on a platform of transparency and public accountability. And so when we do that, um, you know, the organisation needs to uh, rally around and look after us and even protect us to a certain level. Um, and I think when things don't go well, it's often because self-preservation transcends courage. Um, and, you know, I did see some disappointing examples of that. Again, learn from it, move on, you know, be a better leader as a result. But you can't have, you can't help but carry that tiny bit of disappointment around with you for a long time, I think. So, yeah, that's my yeah. comment on it. You learn, um, uh, there's a couple of answers. One of my best kind of mentors used to say, always look for the good in people. Um, yeah. uh, but sometimes, you know, some people, they're just plain nasty. That's just they human make it nature. They tricky, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's, you just got to learn to see, recognize, call it for what it is. And I like what you said, um, that phrase, we're better than that. I've, I've had someone else on the show, um, Matt Elliott, called it, um, we don't do that here. Mm. Um, that's, that's, not, that's not who, yeah, we don't do that. Uh, so I've, that's some really great uh, examples and it's a really good starter. Pete, um, over to you next. Um, you can go anywhere with this. Uh, so... Because you, you're, the submariners haven't always been viewed with glossy eyes by the rest of the people around you, have they? So, um... Yeah, I might not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, what I might do is just take the opportunity, because um, I think it's an important piece, um, to just uh, point to a different part of resilience, um, particularly for... Um, those leading an organisation at the strategic level. What I'd say is resilience doesn't just come into play in times of uh, adversity. So for a strategic leader, you know, resilience is also being able to adapt and thrive um, in the face of opportunity, right? Being able to ride that wave of success or maintain momentum or see and get hold of opportunities. Now that can be exhausting. Um, but, you know, resilience in that circumstance is about, you know, holding your poise and, and holding your equanimity and, you know, perhaps remaining humble in the midst of, you know, some grand success. Um, and you can think of it in the same way. You know, what is the challenge? You know, there's too much goodness coming. I can't, you know, overwhelm or whatever. What is the challenge? What's the support or what's the resource that I need to bring me, bring me through this um, so that you don't crumble? you know, at the, at the sort of height of the wave. Um, so I'll just throw that on the table, see if anyone has any thoughts on that later on. But, but really to go back to uh, some of Amy's comments on, on culture, um, I think in a similar way, um, but I, I reckon my first focus is on purpose. So what is that meaningful endeavour that has brought you all together? What is the work you're doing that actually makes the heartache and the pain and the difficulty worthwhile? Why would you endure or try to endure through this, you know, difficult time? Um, that comes back to, can you explain to your organisation what what game they're in and why it's worthwhile? Um, and I reckon if, 
if everyone in the organization can latch on to, you know, the purpose or a purpose, then people will be much more willing to say, yep, I'll commit myself to this. Um, and I, I think, you know, I saw that through my entire career in uh, the Navy. People could see a really clear um, purpose behind their service and they were willing to put up with all manner <laughs> of inconvenience, discomfort and, and so on in the name of, you know, that, that purpose of, you know, essentially for us defending the nation when, when called upon to do so. So that's what I'd throw out there for you, Alan. That's excellent. Uh, excellent answer. And again, there's so many little rabbit warrens we could go down, but um, uh, Carlene, I'll, I'll let you answer this. And uh, there's so many examples I can hear around that, but something that Peter just talked about, the adaptability in times of um, success. So I would have to say, as an outside observer, how you've handled your biggest challenge, you know, around the, the Northern District floods, you just kept on having, you turned up every day, you had the dignity to lead your people. And now what I read about in the pursuing 12 months is the in, amount of um, support at a financial and resource level um, that the SES is getting. So you're kind of riding the wave that Peter's talking about, I think. And, and, and as you said, you might have only got 80% of what you're after but you still got it. So um, I'll let you answer it. How I'll just make that comment, um, whether you might be able to, whether yeah. you might incorporate in, that into yeah, your thanks. answer. I, I don't know about riding the wave. I'd describe it as a bit of messy surf at the moment, but that's fine. <laughs> um, I, look, I was going to use that as an example. And I think what Peter said about seize the opportunities really um, comes through in the example I'm going to use. So just to set the scene just a little bit. So when I came in as commissioner, there were fires. Didn't have the floods, didn't have COVID. Uh, didn't have much of a leadership team in place, a lot of vacant positions, and the organisation had gone through a restructure that decreased it in size um, and really pushed its um, aims towards response and not not in preparation and prevention. So I came, I came in and, look, there was a real need for support and strength of the leader of the organisation to... Uh, you know, might not be the right expression, but to give them a big hug, to tell them they're appreciated um, and to try and bring some stability. So, you know, building that team. But that was the October and February, um, um, the floods hit. And so we were just operational. So I was sort of, you know, trying to build a team whilst trying to, you know, combat the floods. Um, and then obviously in, in March, COVID hit. And so I was then leading the organisation from my lockdown house that I'd moved into um, for a period of time. So that was a challenge. Um, but I'll jump forward then um, to we did. I did a review. There was I needed evidence that we needed to grow this organisation. We need to build back capacity, and we got some money from that, and which was really exciting. So we I took them away to AIPM, which is a wonderful police leadership college at Manly. Took my leadership team over there to start to talk about how we were going to implement the growth from this um, investment, which was the biggest we'd ever had. Um, it was 170, roughly $170 million. Anyway, on that first day, we were over there. We're all happy and like, this is exciting and we're going to grow. The review report came down that slammed us through the floods, right? Now, I will say, it I, I don't agree with all the review, but that's fine. It was the government's review and they had their response. But it talked about the symptoms, and that's my issue. It didn't talk about the cause. 
So, you know, we didn't have enough people up there. We didn't pre-position. I mean, you've got to remember we had um, warnings across the whole of the east coast of New South Wales, so moving resources was difficult and Queensland had their own problems. But anyway, we've got this and everyone was shattered. The leadership team was depressed. There were tears. And so I thought, right, we've got to get something. We've got to seize this opportunity because it basically says we didn't have enough resources. We didn't have enough people. We didn't have enough boats. We didn't have the um, capacity to respond to something that was, you know, not forecast and not even anticipated. And so, and I've had a few comments since that was about, you know, getting that team to say, right, let, and I used a little bit of my, um, police, I suppose, investigative skills, we will go through this report line by line and see what it really means and see what we can get out of those recommendations. And so for three days, so it worked out absolutely fantastic that we were over there, away from work, no meetings, and just really focused and prioritised on what the recommendations were and what we needed out of a result of it. And as I say, it talked about the symptoms. Uh, which really aligned to what we had done in our corporate plan. So we matched the desires of our three-year corporate plan against the recommendations, and lo and behold, no, no um, surprise that a lot of the recommendations met with we needed more training, we needed more leadership training, we needed more resources, we needed more assets placed around the state ready to be deployed. And I was able to put that case back to government, but it was about, I suppose, leading through by, again, being positive. It's about, I think, you know, um, if I can say our volunteers were like heroes across all areas of the state and they felt personally aggrieved as well by, by it. And they don't understand the purpose always of an independent review. They don't understand... Um, the way in which things are written. So there was a whole uh, process of um, trying to um, give them confidence that we will grow and and um, take this as an opportunity to persuade government to give us more. And that then led, you know, over a period of time of, as you say, the, the um, 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 provision of additional money. The the regretful thing for me was the timing was, if you think about it, we got that first money, but we hadn't been able to put it in place. And so the government had identified that we didn't have enough. They'd given us money for more resources, for more boats and all that sort of stuff. Here we were at the planning session, but we had gone through by that stage two and a half years of record floods where we didn't have time. I'd like, you know, I'm now dealing with we've got overdue audit recommendations, we've got out-of-date policies, we didn't have the capacity to to do that type of government um, clean up or, or governance, I suppose, whilst we were, you know, saving people's lives out there on the flood on the flood um, areas. So, so leading th through that was quite a challenge, and then persuading government to get it. But it was really also a lesson in. Um, I think Amy said is it's about how you react to that. You don't. You, and I love the expression "better not bitter." Um, I could have been bitter about that review, um, but how do we make it better and what do we get out of that? So um, we were able to, you know, persuade government to give us the money. But it was about, again, looking after my senior leadership team. They were devastated. They felt personally aggrieved from, they were tired, you know. They were, I mean, you know, there's there's no such thing as rostered shifts during those floods. They were just working 24-7. And as you say, I was getting up every morning and going and doing the press uh, conferences trying to make the um, 
public feel you know confident that we were there and then then the review came out but but it is now I didn't reflect so much at the time but it is now a review about the symptoms of what had happened to the organization over a number of years of downsizing to then say well this is that's the capacity that we had at the time and we can now build ourselves up um, during this time of uh, a little bit more calmness, I suppose, for ours, whilst regretfully the, the fires look like they'd be the biggest risk. But that's what happened with fires as well. We'd come out of fires, they'd had three years to strengthen, grow, you know, reposition, and we're going into that stage as well. So um, personal challenges, yeah, to get up and, and be strong and, you know, have the face to the community. But also you've got to remember my my volunteers were watching those press conferences as well. They are members of the community. Um, so there were certain messages that I was often in, filtering in to that. Um, and also the government, um, the Premier and the Ministers were very supportive about thanks to the volunteers, thanks for being out there, all that sort of stuff. So that was a way in which, you know, I could get across to all my volunteers across New South Wales in the Channel 9 News or on the radio or whatever to, to tell them that they had the support of government and myself. Um, but then also work on the leadership team to get them bouncing back to to actually want to put in that extra effort to um, to grow the organisation. So, yeah, so Better Not Bid is really good and sees the opportunities from Peter really fantastic as well. You know, you just got to, okay, that's an opportunity, let's go for that. Now I've, I've now got people sort of saying, well, that doesn't help storms and, and chainsaw training and all that sort of stuff. Okay, well, there might be an opportunity for that soon, but that was an <laughs> opportunity we had to see. <laughs> <laughs> that's um that's wow. a really great answer and i think i i thank all of you for coming on the show we, we, we'll I'll, I'll go to you next mick but coming on this panel because i think we've just heard um a really good example of the worst case scenario uh an organization organization could face and you just flipped it on its head mm. uh where's where's the opportunity by the review and lead out of that um and I think we could all learn from that because often resilience is sometimes about how we view something, isn't it really? Yeah, what, uh, if we can view it in a different context and that's where the mental health support comes from and the support of our friends and our networks, if we can just view it a different way, it doesn't hurt so much sometimes. And you turn that you turn that into a, an opportunity. So, so Mick, um, over well, to you. <laughs> yeah, you've got, it's been a, I can't, hard, I, hard I can't, to follow. yeah, it's been a huge um, um, response. This, But but there's a couple of things um, actually that uh, that um, Amy, Pete and Carlene have said that I'll, I might sort of touch on, I guess. Um, I really like that sort of um, from an organisational level that, um, that I guess issue that Amy raised around creating a culture. Um, I think it's really important as a leader to create a culture where people are allowed to be resilient in their own ways because you just don't know, you know what people are going through sometimes. Sometimes people are really open, they talk about it, that's the way they deal with uh, or being resilient. Other people keep it to themselves. So creating a culture that's supportive um, is really important. Um, the, the other thing, I guess, uh, and I'll get to a couple of examples, but purpose, Pete, um, when you raise the issue of purpose is really, really critical too. Um, and, and sometimes as a leader, you know, that leading by example and the day-to-day -day grind is just as important, as you said, in leading through times that are tough as well. So um, with purpose. But a couple of examples, and I wasn't going to sort of think of this, but and the, I raised this, but on the back of what Carleen said, um, it made me reflect on, on when I took over counterterrorism in New South Wales Police as an assistant commissioner, it was on the back of 
the Lit Cafe inquest findings. And here you have a, a highly specialised command, um, you know, both looking at international events and tactical events, you know, tactical issues on the ground that had been fairly or unfairly um, criticised in, in many ways during the inquest. And it had to be ready operationally the very next day. Actually, that you know, that day when when you know they're being uh, pulled to pieces, etc. And um, you know there were lots of things going on in in Iraq and Syria at the time. Um, and uh, you know, I walked into that command on the back of some pretty good leadership beforehand, into a with a group of people that I felt were bruised, battered, <laughs> um, you know, feeling angry and and hurt. Uh, and then being able to sort of pull that together was was what I set about doing. Much like Carleen, you know, but a, you had to create a sense of purpose and a, and a sense of, I guess, um, involving the leadership team around me in coming together as a team to to right what they saw as some wrongs and move forward. And that was a really, really um, challenging time for them. Um, but it was about creating purpose and about creating, you know, that one team environment where everyone was supporting each other to be able to move on uh, and deal with some of the issues that were raised. The second thing is uh, is probably going you know, to get a little bit into the weeds here, um, but I, when I was running the, uh, the Central Met Command, um, like like Carleen, um, we lost one of our own um, officers who who took his own life in the workplace, and I remember getting a phone call on the way into work, you know, literally from uh, from a, a person who was a close colleague of mine who said, you know, that this person had had just been found in the workplace having taken his own life. And it was literally, you know, you could imagine uh, tears crisis. I was literally driving into one of our largest policing buildings, I'll just put it that way, and going, well, how do I deal with this? You know, like, how, how do we actually deal with uh, all that comes with that? And, um, you know, in a building where there were literally, you know, hundreds of of, of employees and, I guess, you know, leading people through those set of circumstances is something that, you know, I, I hope that people, the larger community <laughs> never has to face, but it's it's difficult. And the way that um, I think myself and, and some others around me did it was a few ways, being open and transparent about the issues, um, being consistent in our actions and words, you know, when we were dealing with uh, the hurt and the, and the circumstances of having to to deal with it, being empathetic and compassion, compassionate with with uh, our staff around you know the lots of issues that flowed out of it, but being um being visible, being there and being um you know and and demonstrating I guess uh, resilience, um and by being visible and being present was really critical uh, in dealing with that issue and it was. Yeah, the ramifications of those things uh, go on and on and on. And um, I remember reflecting really deeply um, because I, on that because I was asked to write and deliver the eulogy um, for this particular officer and about who this person was and as a human being and the consequences of the actions that that he took and. Uh, on on not just his family, but you know the community, on the workforce, uh, and it was it was something that um, that you know I, I yeah I, I didn't obviously didn't want to go through, but it was something that um, was really important from a resilience perspective 
to show empathy and to be visible and to be there supporting all of the people around us that were hurting very, very deeply um, at that time. So, yeah, there's lots of examples. I'm sure that everyone's got, you know, about different things, but, um, you know, purpose, an environment and culture that allows you to be resilient and being um, visibly resilient and visibly present as a leader is is critically important, I think. Beautiful answers. Well, I think you've, um, I'm not going to, pro- uh, I'm not going to ask any more questions, actually. I'll, I'll, let's just uh, close it with something from each of you that you want to say on the topic of resilience. Um, and I'll, I will go anti-clockwise, starting with uh, Peter, Mick, Amy, and Carlene. Um, so just you finish this panel with what you want to say. Thanks, Alan. Look, I'd uh, probably close with something around self-care um, and, and just start with uh, self-care is not selfish. Um, self-acceptance and self-respect and self-compassion are vital for anyone's, you know, mental and physical health and well-being. Um, and and for leaders, you know, self-care enables the commitment and the courage and the compassion that they have to bring to work. It enables good decisions and, and effective action. So I just see it as, um, you know, a, a vital enabler of, of leadership and, and resilience. Um, and, you know, in many respects, um, in order to be resilient and to help their organisations be resilient, leaders need to place themselves first and foremost so that they're then in a position to lead and serve others. Well, mm. um, uh, your, and your book kind of touches on your own personal challenges in that self-care space. So that's a good answer, Pete. Uh, thank you. Mick? Um, look, very similar. Um, geez, I've learned a lot. Just listening to the stories from the, the panel members, amazing. But, um, you know, I, th- I think asking for help is not a bad thing. You know, when you need help, you need to throw your hand up and ask for help. And um, no one can battle through some of the challenges that face us as human beings and as leaders, I guess, um, without on your own. You need you need help. And remember that it does pass. You know, you do. You know, it does move on. Life does move on. And at the time, uh, sometimes in, in, in the darkest times, you might, you can't see the future. You can't envisage um, feeling, you know, um, feeling um, any different from the way you are, but it does pass. Um, but, the, you know, throwing your hand up and asking for help is, is absolutely critical for that. Great answer. Uh, I, I might just add um, to that answer, Mick, um, we, are, we are a lot stronger than we think we are sometimes. Yeah. And I think um, you, know, you started the conversation, uh, all of you started the conversation in the importance of family and friends. Um, sometimes um, our family and our friends are watching us get through the worst and worst of times and we're showing them that it is possible. Uh, yeah. Like our example will help uh, others around us and particularly our families and friends. Beautiful answer. Amy. Yeah, I think I'll continue a little bit of a theme, but maybe um, a slightly different angle. I guess um, it's critical to remember that your kind of value and worth 
as a human is the same when you're going through hard times as it is um, when, you know, everything's going well. And that actually kind of doesn't change. That's that's constant. And when you're in that kind of on the little boat and it's all rocky and the storm's hitting, gosh, I mean, keep using these analogies that actually <laughs> are real for these people. I'm doing the metaphor. But, you know, um, when you are in kind of really um, <laughs> troubled seas, if you will, <laughs> oh, my gosh, I just keep digging my hole even greater. Um, you know, you are the same person. And actually your character is being refined in ways that you will only understand when you're through it. Um, and then you can impact the people around you in new and interesting ways that you never even uh, realised you were capable of. And to Mick's point, um, it will pass. Look for the glimmers of sunshine. Um, you know, know that there will be something great on the other side because we go through uh, these times to just to refine us um, to make us better leaders, to help us learn. And even though it's tough, kind of cling on to that because um, one day you'll turn around and go, ah, that's why. That's why yeah. I went through it. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's it. You're all amazing. Some of the simple words you, you know, refine. The journey will refine us. It's a pretty good answer. Um, Carlene, lucky last. Uh, yeah, look, I agree with everyone. And, and uh, like Mick, listening to the stories, I mean, it, it does make you feel as a leader that you're not alone going through these challenges, which is great. So it's motivated me for another day. Um, but we all go through those successes and challenges. And I just thought there's some real similarities between our stories today, even though they're all quite different. So just some of those words about strength, compassion, dedication, support is really important, but also optimism that, you know, like it's just amazing what you know, everyone is doing for the right reasons um, and then these, you know, ad adverse situations are thrown at you and, you know, there's some great examples today of people pushing through that and really doing good things for our community. So that that's my ending comment, Alan. Wonderful. Well, I, I don't think we need to um, ask any more questions. Can I say thank you? You actually, none of us really knew how this was going to work out, but um, I think we've created something pretty wonderful. So thank you for agreeing to be part of it. And and this wasn't rehearsed, but how you how you kind of bounced off each other is be, will be something that's pretty special for everyone uh, going forward. So thank you. Um, and that'll end our interview today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, how good was that, everyone? I must say that was probably one of my favourite interviews so far. I'll leave you with some gems that our leaders shared with us right at the end and let you reflect on what they said. Peter Scott said, the importance of self-care is not selfish. The leader has to be resilient themselves to be able to lead others. Mick, William, Mick Willing said, it's okay to ask for help. It's not a bad thing. And the situation you're in, no matter how bad it is, will pass. Amy Brown said, the value and worth of everyone is the same, whether they are succeeding or failing. It's the same person in front of you. And when we're going through these bad times, Amy says, our character is being refined and it will pass and it will refine us. Carlene York's wisdom says we're not alone. 
and our successes and challenges are remarkably similar in whatever environment we're in. And the importance of optimism in the face of adversity is something to hang on to. Until next time, everyone, thanks for listening. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I'd suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sickard. It was edited by Alan Sickard and mixed by Alan Sickard. The theme music is by a musician called Savik and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sickard. Thanks for listening.